I was this shy, very withdrawn person. And no amount of alcohol was going to make me something else. But I didn't know that then. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety, the podcast. Uh, I'm Tom Rutledge, and with me is, uh, of course, Dr. Alan Berger. Dr. Berger, how are you? Well, lots of emotional sobriety yesterday, Tom. I did a... Mm -hmm. I did the second workshop out at Harmony Hollow Farm yesterday on oh, yeah. dealing with our disturbances, man. And we had about mm -hmm. 50 people show up and, you know, sometime you're going to be coming out and doing one of them out there. I mean, it's a, it's a very special place, first of all, but the work that people did yesterday was so moving, man. It was very powerful. So I'm filled with the gratitude about seeing the impact that this that this whole issue of emotional sobriety has on people's lives. Dude. And look, we got a great show today. Patrick, how are you doing? How's your emotional sobriety today? Oh, uh, well, you know, um, I'm uh, excited and anxious about um, having a new guest on the program, but I'm just so grateful that we have our returning friend, Carol Carter, here to um you know, uh, set the stage for us. Uh, she was a guest on our, uh, per the previous iteration of this podcast, start right here. And, uh, now, uh, you know, we've seemed to come full circle and she's joining us on emotional sobriety. How are you doing, Carol? Great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd like to introduce a new friend of mine, Brian Cuban, and Brian will be our guest today. Brian has been extremely generous in sharing his recovery story. Um, he's an attorney and now an author. He's been in recovery several years. He's written a couple of books about his recovery journey, and his latest book is The Ambulance Chaser, and it's a great mystery novel. I'm halfway through, and I see uh, threads of recovery in it and threads of local color as he writes about Pittsburgh. It's a very interesting book. So, um, Brian, welcome to the show. First and foremost, <laughs> I am a person in long-term recovery. Uh, my sobriety date is April 8, 2007, and I am in recovery from uh, two different eating disorders, uh, traditional and exercise bulimia. And for those who don't know what exercise bulimia it is, it's obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. I am in recovery from uh, problem drinking, alcohol, uh, alcoholism, alcohol use disorder, the clinical diagnosis. I am in recovery from cocaine addiction, uh, substance use disorder. Uh, I deal with uh, major depressive episodes separate from my addiction uh, daily. Uh, well, as I mean, it's a daily trying to keep it in balance. I don't have them daily. Yeah. Also, uh, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, jail, three failed marriages, all revolving around drugs and alcohol. Uh, and finally, uh, my recovery journey began after my second trip to a psychiatric hospital, April 8, 2007. I am originally from Pittsburgh. I am the middle of three boys, born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA. 
I have an older brother, Mark, who people know, uh, Shark Tank and the Mavs. I have a younger brother, Jeff. Uh, I am the middle. And I have, I have had my undergraduate degree in criminal justice from Penn State. I have my law degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And it's been quite a journey through the practice of law, uh, through college, where I was an alcoholic in college. I was an alcoholic in law school, trying to navigate uh, those things and, and graduate was interesting. Uh, not understanding that I had a problem, right? It's just what you did. Right. Uh, but uh, I've been able to uh, come out the other side and uh, living my best life now as uh, and continuing to try to improve on that in recovery. Well, welcome. You're 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 our kind of guy, Brian. You're, <laughs> you're just ringing all kinds of bells for for the for the rest of us here. So so uh, glad you're here. It's good to be here. Good to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Well, One day I at a time. Hear that. One moment I at a time. Hear that. Yeah. So we'll tell it. Tell us a little bit about you. You talked about uh, your. You so you've written some non. You've written not nonfiction books. Yeah, I've written two nonfiction books. They're both memoir style. The first was many years ago was Shattered Image, and it was about primarily my struggle with eating disorders and body image. And it didn't go so much into my uh, struggle with addiction. And uh, the second was The Addicted Lawyer, which was released in 2017. And that was more covering my struggle with addiction and uh, cocaine and alcohol and how it impacted my life as a student, a law student, and as a lawyer. And it basically, I lost my career as a lawyer. Uh, and, uh, and so that it covered that in my, in my journey into recovery. And so uh, two different books. And then the third one, obviously, The Ambience Chaser is a novel. It is a thriller, a legal thriller. So very excited about that. And that's been out less than a week. And that that's also exciting. has a little theme that could be slightly autobiographical. It does. It does. The protagonist, yeah, Jason, lovely. is obviously, you write what you know. He's struggling with cocaine and alcohol addiction. Uh, I've never killed anyone, <laughs> but accused of killing anyone. <laughs> at least not it. yet. That's, but, yeah, uh, I was going to say, yeah, yet is what we say in the program. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's, been quite, it's been quite a journey. And really to understand it, you have to go back to Pittsburgh, the baby boomer era. Back when we know cell phones were two cups, cell phones were two cups attached to a string. Mm-hmm. And uh, social networking was playing dodgeball on the basketball blacktop, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> My, you have to understand the dynamics of my family. My older brother, Mark, uh, the firstborn, he was outgoing and selling this door to door and that door to door. And you kind of knew what he was going to be. I remember our local newspaper went on strike and he and his buddies, barely old enough to drive, drove out to Cleveland, about 200 miles from Pittsburgh, bought their newspapers, drove them back to Pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner for twice what they paid for them downtown. So you kind of knew what he was going to be. My younger brother, Jeff, was uh, a, a jock, good-looking kid is, he's still alive, nationally ranked wrestler, the beer parties, the prom, the dates, all the things that I associated with love and acceptance. And I was classic middle child syndrome. I was with shy, I was withdrawn, and I internalized anything negative said about me and wore it as yes. kind of who I was, like a skin-tight suit. And unfortunately, I also had a very difficult relationship with my mother. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear that I do not blame my mother for the things I went through. I do not blame my parents in any way. There is no parent blaming here. There is a difference between cause and correlation. 
Yes. And absolutely. Correlation means certain it'll have things that happen in the home can have an imp- mental health impact on some people and it won't on others. Uh, there was a lot of fat shaming in my household. My mom used to come home from selling real estate and she would see me. I would love to eat Chef Boyardee ravioli out of the can of SpaghettiOs and beefaroni and one of those old style can openers. <laughs> and we didn't have a microwave back then. You stick in the spoon and just eat it out of the can. Yes. And my mom would come home and see me doing that. And she said, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pig. And when I had bad grades, she would call me a dumb bunny. And these were the thing, this, this was the relationship she had with her mother and the things her mother would say to her, and probably the things my great-grandmother said to my grandmother. Fat shaming in families is often handed down generationally. My mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her bipolar mother. And so she was struggling with her own mental health issues at a time when a young mother struggling with mental health issues, you could be put in an asylum or lose your children. So you didn't talk about those things back in the 70s. Uh, You know, it was just, it was verboten, right? It was just not things that we're talking about. And not understanding this, I grew depressed to hear these things. And I began to eat more Chef Boyardee and more Chef Boyardee. And I became a bigger Brian and a bigger Brian. And it so often happens when kids change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school, the bullying started, the fat shaming, the fat teasing, the fat taunting, you're a fat pig. Well, you must talk to my mom. You need to go to Sears and Roebuck and get a bra for your man boobs. And back when Sears was a thing. And I developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor to kind of put up a wall of the sad clown, right? The sad deprecating clown. So they wouldn't, the kids wouldn't know how bad that hurt me. And I would say, yeah, I'm headed to Sears right now and laugh it off. But it, 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 it did hurt. And the bullying and the taunting culminated in what I call the day of the gold pants. It was my freshman year in high school, and my brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. Now, we've seen, have you seen Saturday Night Fever? Mm-hmm. And most of us boomers have, right? And maybe even Gen Xers and the younger kids. Mm-hmm. And you have John Travolta in his disco pants, and John Travolta looked great in his disco pants. And Mark was very into the disco. It was just up and coming in 76 and the 77. And he says he even taught it, although I can find no evidence of that anywhere. <laughs> but uh, he gave me this pair of, of disco pants, these satin gold disco pants. And I love my brother. We're very close. And I wore them to school. But they fit Mark okay. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 <laughs> cats trying to get out. But I didn't care. And I wore them to school and the kids taunted me and made fun of me. And I'm walking home with a group of these kids one day wearing my shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. And these kids were kind of the bullies. But in my mind, they're also the popular kids, the prom king, the prom queen. This is before the Internet. And my images of popularity were the kids I saw every day. The kids holding hands, walking down the hallway between the lockers, the kids kissing their dates. The kids talking about going to the concerts or going to the dairy, uh, going to the ice cream shop and the after school parties. And I was just too shy to ever ask to be included because I thought they'd never want to include a quote unquote fat pig. I'm walking home from school with these kids and I'm wearing the pants and they start making fun of me. They start pulling at them and they start tearing at them. And it became like a swarm of bees once a couple rips had got into the pants like a swarm of pack of wolves and they physically assaulted me 
and they ripped these pants off me, tore them into shreds and threw them out in a busy street a mile from home, down to my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt, my Keds tennis shoes and my three, remember the three color ring tube shop, tube socks back in the day? Mm-hmm. Oh and, yeah. Uh, they went on like they had fun, done the funniest thing ever, high five them. I went out in the street, I gathered up the shreds and I covered up my tidy whities and I waddled home. People got, no one stopped. I got home and the house was empty. It was funeral quiet. And I walked down the wooden stairs down to our basement and these stairs were creaking. And with every creak, I felt like the whole world knew my shame, my parents, my brothers, the kids that did it, you know, the, uh, the kids at school. It, it just reverberated, these creaks reverberated throughout the world. And I got to the bottom and I found a wastebasket and I put the shreds in the bottom of the trash at the wastebasket, hoping that, that that would hide my shame and I could forget about it. But that's not how trauma works. Trauma threads, trauma remembers, and uh, unresolved trauma has a strong correlation of mental health issues later in life. And it was right around then that this was now, you know, I was, what was I at my freshman year in high school of 15, maybe 14, 15, that I began to remember seeing myself in my reflection as just this ugly fat pig who would never be loved by anyone, not his mother who loved him dearly, who loved me dearly. And I was just dealing with our own mental health issues. We have a wonderful relationship today. Not he would never have a girlfriend, never get his first kiss. And uh, that is how I started to see myself. And so I graduated high school. And as you might imagine, I was very, I was thrilled to get out of high school. And I went on to Penn State University and I thought it was going to be a new Brian. Now I'm 18 years old. It's going to be great, going to meet new people. And my father drove me up to Penn State. And it was this crisp fall day. And I look out the window of my dorm. I'm sharing a dorm with three other guys. My father's helping me unpack. And I make eye contact out in the parking lot with this curly brown haired girl. Because everyone's out there talking. Their trunks are open. They're pulling out their luggage. She's talking to this other girl. And I remember she was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen, you know, as 40 years, 40 some years ago, right? And uh, she looks at me, we make the eye contact and I start sweating and it's 40 some degrees and I'm sweating. I imagine my entire life with, with this girl in, two, in 10 seconds, we're gonna get married, we're gonna date, we're gonna get married and we're gonna have two and one half children. My life is good now. It wasn't a smile, it was a smirk. She looked at me, she looked at her friend, she looked back at me, puts her hands over her mouth just like this, ugly ugly. Now, I am not the first kid to have nasty things said to him, right? It happened then, it happens now, although it happens now on the internet in a much more insidious way. And other people react based on their social, their genetic, their upbringing. Uh, And I was, unfortunately, another kid may have flipped her off, another kid may have said ugly back, given her the, you know, given her the salute. And, uh, but I was somebody who already felt ugly. And I remember thinking at that point, and it's not this girl's fault, obviously. If it's not this, it's that. And I remember thinking at that point that my whole world was out of control. I would always be ugly. How could I not be ugly? What did I have control over so I could not be ugly and win the love of this curly brown haired girl so she wouldn't think I was ugly? I only had control over food. That's it. That's all a 17-year-old going on 18-year-old young man had control over. 
So I decided that getting thin and looking like the kids at school in high school was my road to popularity and not being ugly. So I began to restrict my food intake. And before I know it, I transitioned into binging and purging. And this was 1979, before anyone was talking about eating disorders, before the beautiful, wonderful singer Karen Carpenter passed away in 1983, bringing anorexia and eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight. This was before that. I didn't know what an eating disorder was. It was very, it was instinctive. I just, I went out to this pancake house one day and I gorged myself. I came back and I felt so ashamed. And it was just this overwhelming, obsessive, compulsive urge to binge and purge. So I go down to the public bathroom. I kneel over the toilet. I keep flushing the toilet and I binged and purged. And I didn't know what it was called, but it was just instinct, literally. And every time I binged and purged from then on, I got this feeling of peace that came in for a few seconds. Like the next day that girl would love me. The next day, everything was going to be okay. But after the peace left my gut and swept this beach ball of shame, this inflated beach ball of shame, what, what, what am I doing? Guys don't stick their fingers down their throat. What is this? What am I doing with this? But I had to have that feeling of peace again and again. I had to have that feeling that the next day was going to be okay again and again, the life of a bulimic. And before I knew it, I transitioned into exercise bulimia, which is uh, I was running 10 miles a day, then 20 miles a day. And I'm engaging in these behaviors and I wasn't feel. I still saw this monster in the mirror, in my in the car reflection, in the classroom reflection, in the reflection at the local mall in the windows. And I was just so ashamed and depressed. I instinctively transitioned to alcohol. I'll just drown it. I'll just drown it. I won't feel at all. If I have to feel this way, I won't feel at all. And before I knew it at Penn State, moving from my sophomore into my junior year, I was drinking almost every night. I was drinking alone. I was going to the alleyways where the bars are at Penn State. And I would go to the state store, our liquor stores at Penn State, where I would buy a uh, one of those tiny bottles of tequila. I would take it with me into the alley, chug the bottle of tequila so I could get drunk in the alley just to go up to the bar already, already intoxicated and hope that that would create a new Brian so I could be this person that I saw the popular kids being outgoing, right? The life of the party. And that's not who I was. I was this shy, very withdrawn person. And no amount of alcohol was going to make me something else. But I didn't know that then. And I kept drinking more to uh, see if it could make me that. And that is how I began my journey drinking. It was uh, in college. Uh, I was I was going to class drunk. I was going to class hungover. And I remember the only epiphany I really came close to about recovery or had a problem. I walked into a hamburger joint drunk, of course. And they, I don't know if they still do this, but they have the racks of pamphlets that the 12-step groups put out called the 20 questions. And it was geared towards college students. Do you black out? Do you miss class? Call us, right? Call us. Mm-hmm. You know, here, you know, check out the meetings. We have... And, all, I, and I'm looking at him and I'm checking it off. Yes, I black out. Yes, I miss class. I crinkle it up and, you know, my tryout for the Dallas Mavericks right into the wastebasket, even though the Mavericks didn't even exist then. <laughs> and uh, that was as close I ever came in college. And that was my journey with alcohol. That is how it began. And then uh, by the I uh, 
graduate. I was able, I was a criminal justice major. I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room training up a baby accident for the blow, believe me. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting in the placement office one day at Penn State, looking through, flipping through police officer jobs in these little pamphlets before computers. And there were two guys next to me. And they were talking, they're from Pittsburgh, and they're talking about taking the law school admission test and going to law school. And the bell start going off in my head. Not that I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't care about being a lawyer. Not that I wanted to be Clarence Darrow or emulate Atticus Finch. The bells of law school's three years. I can stay in school three more years and I can binge and purge. I can drink. I can uh, run. And I can engage in the exact same behaviors that were my survival, my Linus, Snoopy Linus survival blanket that I always had with me that got me through four years at Penn State because that's all I was doing was surviving. Right. We talk about recovery uh, one step at a time. I was surviving one second at a time drinking. Uh, just that's all I knew. The tip of my nose is all I saw. I couldn't even see three years out. Yeah. And uh, for those reasons, it made perfect sense to me to go to law school. That's it. You know, you know, one of the things that stands out, just how strong, Brian, this I'm OK if mentality was inside of you. You know, I'm okay if I got to a certain weight. I'm okay if I looked a certain way. And it's just such a powerful thing in our culture. It's sure. this idea we objectify ourselves so much. Oh, yeah. Especially today. I mean, the need, an overblown need for acceptance and in a, in a uh, drive for uh, self-love can be as uh, can be as destructive as a line of cocaine. And uh, Yep. And oh, it, it sure can. It can. Yeah. Look. You know, you start looking at the amount of money that people are spending on, quote, they call it cosmetic surgery. And now men and women, it's not just women. Right here, you don't want to know how many hair transplants I have and liposuction and all yeah. kinds of things. I have done everything. I abused anabolic steroids and almost lost my leg. I have done a lot of things to my body to change an appearance that never changed, no matter what I saw, what I did. I got thin, I got very muscular, but I still saw this monster in the mirror. Yeah. It never changed. Yeah. Since since I was 17 years old or 16 years old. Yeah. It's, it's so yeah how that image persists. Right. I mean, how no matter what happens, it's so fixed, that image. It was. It was. And people say, is that a delusion? No, it was an oh, uh, these disorders are on the eating disorder. I mean, the the body dysmorphic issues I were having are on the obsessive compulsive spectrum. It was this overpowering feeling that built up in me. That I that it was that I, I wasn't who I saw in my reflection. Yes. And then boom, I drank. Then boom, I did this. And then and then after I did that, everything, oh, but then it built up again and built up yeah. again and built up again. It was a vicious cycle that uh I did get through my I did get through law school as an alcoholic, and I don't say that as a badge of honor. Uh, I barely graduated by the skin of my teeth, and it was rinse, wash, repeat. Going to class drunk, going to class hungover. Drinking, wow. uh, going to the bars, drinking alone in my apartment, drinking, uh, drinking the tequila before I even went to the bars. The cycle was the same. It was just a, a different setting. State College PA, now Pittsburgh PA, right? It was just a different setting. And I graduated near the bottom of my class. It was close. I still have a reoccurring dream about the uh, uh, going to graduation and the dean of the law school pulling back my diploma saying you didn't graduate. And I wake up sweating, grabbing for it. The irony of that is I was so depressed 
uh, th- about who I was and ashamed I'd even bother going to uh, graduation. And the flip side of that was last year in recovery, they invited me back to, to keynote their 2020 commencement. <laughs> I wore the cap and gown for my first time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you Beautiful. have graduated. That dream was very powerful because well, you have, from what I can see, graduated into your life in a really healthy way today. Yes, it was. Uh, and nobody can take that diploma no. back from you. You're right. There's the life I lived in addiction and there's the life I'm living in recovery. And, uh, you know, you, you learn, you hope you learn from one and build resilience, but uh, everyone has a different path to that in a different timeline. But that, I, I uh, picked up and I picked up after law school and uh, with 50 bucks to my name, took a Greyhound bus to Dallas, Texas, where my brother Mark uh, met me at the bus station and I moved in with him. Hadn't taken the Texas bar yet. And uh, it was like throwing gasoline on a fire because they didn't know about my issues. Now, my younger brother lived there, too, lives here. And uh, I'm going out with them and I'm going out and they're young. They're, they don't do drugs. They didn't do drugs, but they're young. They're going out to the bars or dating. And I fit right in. And yeah. my drinking, it, my drinking increase escalated, if it, to believe it or not. <laughs> And then in the summer of 1987, I was at a club, I was at a uh, very upscale uh, uh, bar befitting my uh, non-barred lawyer status, unemployed, wearing my high school suit, uh, pretending I was something I wasn't. I did, did, I finally discovered the one thing, the one thing that for the first time in my life, the first time in my 20, 26 years, allowed me to finally look in the mirror and love who I was, albeit artificially. The first time I discovered cocaine, I did that first line of cocaine in that bathroom of that club. And for the first time in my life, I looked at my reflection and loved Brian. For the first time in my life, girls love Brian. For the first time in my life, my mother loved Brian. You know, and of course she did. Uh, For the first time in my life, Dallas loved Brian, right? And everyone that, (laughs) now that that curly brown haired girl at Penn State loved Brian. (laughs) Then the high went away. What happened? Brian hates Brian. Brian loved Brian, too. Brian loved Brian at that moment. That moment, Brian loved Brian. Then the high went away, and the lockjaw, what the hell? Where's where's that guy who gave me that free line? I found the guy. I bought a gram of cocaine, and I love Brian again, Mm -hmm. and again, and again, and again. And cocaine and alcohol took over my life. Mm -hmm. I failed the Texas bar exam uh, two and a half times because of drugs and alcohol. Uh, I was arrested for DWI. And in the summer of 2000, I I lost my career as a lawyer. And here's where privilege comes in. And I acknowledge my privilege. I have financial privilege. I have skin color privilege. I have many different layers of privilege that many people don't have. Uh, That doesn't mean I took advantage of it. And addiction on an individual basis clearly doesn't discriminate, right? It can hit anyone at any time. Although it does impact different demographics differently. It was brutal in in, in the summer of... I was trading in, in, in 2006, I was trading Mavericks championship tickets for cocaine that I'd get from my brothers. When we went to the championship, we went to the finals for the first time. And, and in 2005, I finally became so hopeless that uh, I would ever look in the mirror and love myself. I lost all hope and losing hope is a dangerous thing when you're dealing with all these other issues. Uh, I decided to end my life by suicide and decided I would be doing my family a favor if I did so. And so I obtained a weapon and I sent a very disturbing email to a friend. And at this point, I was literally, guys, 
I was literally Xanaxing, cocaining my way through every night and Xanaxing my way through every day. I was, I was, it, it was, I was, days were just going by. I don't even know what happened. And when I, I was doing cocaine in the state courthouse and the federal courthouse, I was showing up to hearings under the influence. You're all wondering, how does this guy still have his license? Was he disbarred? No, but it wasn't for a lack of trying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but uh, lawyers have a uh, alcoholism rate at twice the general public. So mm-hmm. it's a very real issue. Wow. Profession. No, and you had you had tag team addiction. You know, it's like you, you know, one 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 just tag in and, and another one go out. You get, you know, do, you, you could you could sedate yourself. You could send yourself. It was, sky it was brutal for uh, Yeah. If you want to know how it got, this is an epiphany. I mean, this is kind of a microcosm of how what it got. One night, I had been cocaining all night, and I knew I didn't have to be anywhere the next day. And I was also taking this diet drug called Allie, okay? And uh, I decided to take it because I, I was just a mess. And it, caught, it can cause stomach problems. I took this Allie, I took my Xanax, and I defecated in my pants while I was zonked out on Mm-hmm. Uh, on Xanax. There, there you go, right? Mm-hmm. The lawyer defecated in his pants. Uh, it's about sums it up. And I was very lucky because this friend I sent a disturbing email to uh, contacted my two brothers who came into my house. They took the weapon. It was on my nightstand and they hauled me kicking and screaming my first of trip uh, to uh, down to a uh, psychiatric hospital. And I wasn't ready for recovery. They're trying to save my life. I'm, tr- you know, I want them to get out of my life and let me go back to the people who love me, at least until the cocaine was ran out. Uh, but they weren't willing to do that. But I wouldn't go to I, the privilege. I, I, I wouldn't utilize the privilege I had. I refused to go to uh, treatment. And so they took my car keys and said, just stay in your house for two weeks and everything will be okay. The Cuban rehab, right? Uh, that's not how it works either. <laughs> but my family was no different than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And my only thought was my drug dealer delivers, no problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was right back out at it. You actually, was, touch your no- you actually touch your nose yeah. when you say that, by the way. It's, it's, <laughs> that's the old habits wow. die hard. <laughs> I was right back out at it. And uh, my brother was literally supporting me because he didn't want to see me living under a bridge because I had no career. Uh and then in the, uh, I met a girl in uh, January, 2006. Uh, we started dating. She knew nothing about my issues. You know, I had a JD, but I had a PhD in camouflage, but it was getting harder. It was getting harder. Uh, Cause I was nearing the end. I was really nearing the end. Uh, you know, the cocaine's fun till it's not right. And it was not anymore. I, I was really uh, nearing the end, but I was always searching for that next line that would recapture what it was chasing the dragon. And so we started dating. She moved in with me. Easter weekend, 2007, she went out. She went to visit her parents. I went out. I went out. The next thing I know, it's two days later. She left on a Friday. It's Sunday moving towards evening. She's looking down at me. I'm in bed. There's cocaine everywhere. There's Xanax. There's beer bottles and stuff screwed out through the bedroom. I'd had a two-day blackout. I had no idea how I got home. She's looking down at me thinking, what the hell? probably wondering if she walked in the right house. She's a lawyer too. (laughs) I'm looking around, trying to get my bearing, trying to figure out what day it is and how to explain this law and order episode orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. (laughs) All I could think of was a metaphorical running home to mama. 
take me back to the psychiatric hospital. <laughs> what, you've been to a psychiatric hospital? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. I just need time to think about good lie to explain. <laughs> so she drives me down there and we're standing in the parking lot. She's crying. And a few things occurred to me. We're waiting for intake. One, there wasn't going to be a third trip back. I'd be dead. Two, uh, she was going to leave. And she actually stood by me and we dated for a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. And we've now been married over five years and together going on 16. So that's lovely. Yeah. Not all relationships will survive it and they don't, but ours was able to. And, but I had to do the work for me, right? Because people do leave, people yep. die. And there was, there's a lot of trauma in sobriety as well, especially when we have to fe- actually feel our feelings. And then I thought about something else. I thought about something my father said to my brothers and I growing up. My father, who was a veteran of the Pacific, fought in Okinawa, CB, fought in Korea. He and his older brother, Marty, had a trim shop in Pittsburgh, PA, from the end of the Korean War until his brother died in 99. And a trim shop is where they reupholster seats. They reupholster car seats and convertibles, you know, and couches and put on convertible tops. Very working class guy. He was the middle of three boys like me. He said, guys, wherever you go in life, no matter what you do, pick up the phone and call your brother. Make sure your brother is okay. Tell your brother you love him. This was the relationship he had with his two brothers. I wasn't ready to lose my family. And if you want to know how that stuck, that gift of family he gave us, which is another privilege because a lot of people don't, don't have that. If you want to know how that gift stuck, all these decades later, 1,200 miles away, my two brothers and I live walking distance to each other. And my father, until he passed away over three years ago, lived across the street from me, literally across the street. And I was ready. Easter weekend, 2007. Why not in 2005? I don't know. If we could figure that out, right, we'd all win the Nobel Prize for addiction recovery. But uh, I was ready. And... I chose 12 step. I didn't go to treatment. And I, April 8th, 2007, after consultation with my therapist, who I still see, I walked into the rooms of 12 step. And when I sat down, when I sat down that first day, I smelled and I was crying, listening to stories and comparing them, obviously. And I didn't know if I was an alcoholic or a clinical alcohol use disorder. But here's what I knew sitting in that chair the first day. And we, people say hard, comfortable chairs. My home group chairs are actually pretty cushy. They were nice chairs. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sitting in that chair, here's what I wanted. I, if, if sitting in that chair would, for the first time in my life, allow me to get up the next morning and walk birthday suit naked to the mirror, look at myself, and for the first time in my now 40-plus years, look in that mirror and love Brian without the aid of cocaine, alcohol, or anything else, I would sit in that chair because that's all I wanted for anything anything was to love myself, just to love myself without, for who I am, for who I am. And if sitting in that room would allow me to do that for the first time, I would sit in that room. And I Mm -hmm. sat, I sat, and I sat. I did a hundred meetings in 90 days, got my sponsor. And uh, I I, I credit, there are, there are a lot of moving parts, but uh, in, in large part, I credit uh, my 12-step uh, for saving my life because uh, mm-hmm. those first 90 days were, I mean, in those first 90 days, you have to remember, we go through the rituals, right? Yeah, I threw away all the alcohol. I threw away all the glasses. I, 
you know, you cut off, you, 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 I, I, I got a new phone, changed my number, but I know my dealer's number in my head, right? I know, I know, still know where the parties are. So being in that room during those first 90 and 100 days when the pool was so strong and people were still reaching out to me, hey, you know, I know where the good blow is and this and that. I don't know if I would have made it if not for that. Uh, I'd have been right back out, you know, in the bar and, you know, and, and, and dialing that dealer's number. And uh, I, I went through a lot of therapy. I'm still in therapy today. And uh, one day at a time, uh, I am now moving, rounding the bend. Uh, hopefully, I think we say one day at a time, but I've been through a lot of trauma in real life and sobriety. I'm confident that I'll make it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, around the bend to, to 15 years. So uh, that's where I am today. Oh, man. What a journey. Emotional sobriety is not always e- easy because I'm still Brian, right? And uh there's still there's still crap going on, and I still suffer from uh, uh, major depressive episodes, uh, separate from my recovery. I, uh, you know, I've been uh, suicidal in recovery, mm-hmm. uh, and I still see a therapist today. I've been seeing a therapist and taking antidepressants, but uh, it's uh, every day is a different type of journey to stay to stay balanced, right? To keep my emotional sobriety balanced because life happens. Right. Let me let me let me ask you about writing. Have you always been a writer? I mean, I'm not talking about where have you always been writing, but in your soul, have you always been a writer? I think my soul always wanted to be a writer, but that soul was uh, had uh, a lot of alcohol and cocaine, uh, you know, kind of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I never got around to it for 30 years, but it's like we moved into recovery and I was able to start the journey of figuring out who I am, right? Mm-hmm. Because the early recovery was just about, uh, you know, dealing with all the emotions and uh, staying on the beam while I was dealing with all the trauma of my childhood and trying to heal this mm-hmm. hurt little boy, which I still work on, and mm-hmm. uh, letting him know that none of it was his fault. Right. And was then, was the writing was the writing uh, part of your recovery? Do you, do you feel like that helped a lot? Oh, absolutely. I started out journaling in 12-step. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I have my original journals from my first uh, 30 days and 12 step. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but my first book shattered image was, was not meant for anything to, but to a, uh, a cathartic recovery journey. Right. Uh, yeah. So writing and, uh, never wanted to be a lawyer. The creative Brian was always in there, mm-hmm. but just never had a chance to get out. What have you noticed about, I'm, I'm curious, what have you noticed about the difference when you shift from nonfiction to, to fiction with this new book? Uh, fiction is a much different uh, art. Uh, you have to remember when I write memoir, I know my story back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a little bit, timelines are easier. It's a little bit easier to outline, but, uh, creating characters and creating interesting plots right out of the blue, uh, at, mm-hmm. you know, from it was, was, it was a journey in itself and a journey of emotion, right? And a journey where I needed emotional sobriety because mm-hmm. it was at times a frustrating journey as I learned the art of fiction. Did you start writing the ambulance chaser during the pandemic? No, I started it before the pandemic, but if we're going to find, and I don't mean to minimize the the awful pandemic and the people we've lost, but if there's any bright lining at all, it's that it allowed me to finish my novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. It allowed us to start a podcast. Yeah. That's right. uh, I don't think I would have it out on this. It would have gotten out when it did. If not, if I didn't have the time, because I'm a keynote speaker. I speak at law firms and I speak at recovery events and stuff. Uh, that's that collapsed, right? During the pandemic, uh, you, you know, you're not going out to events to speak. And I did some virtual stuff, but it, literally the uh, speaking industry just literally imploded. 
Mm-hmm. So that left me with a lot of time. I think we've all found some gifts during the pandemic. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, uh, I found my voice in new ways that I hadn't expected. And I'm uh-huh. able to look in the mirror and be very happy with who I see today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's allowed me to do a lot. It's allowed me to explore myself and uh, in, in many different ways. Uh, it's from an isolation. I've always been someone who t- tended towards isolation. I've always mm-hmm. been. Uh, somebody who's a bit shy. I'm, my wife and I would go to dinner. Uh, we're not social butterflies. We're not out on the charity circuit. Uh, we, you know, we go to dinner. We watch TV. Or we're looking for the next show. We have our cats. Yeah, play with your so cats. <laughs> from a, from a uh, from that standpoint, it wasn't anything that really. I know it. A lot of people it really impacted in the uh, uh, the. Uh, the addiction rate in alcohol and the alcohol problem drinking rate, we know is skyrocket. I mean, mm-hmm. from an opioid addiction standpoint, we had a hundred thousand fatal overdoses last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that has been problematic. And that's, that's from an isolation standpoint, but uh, we've been able to manage that fairly well. You know, one thing we share in common too, is we had really great last few years with our dads. Yes. And I'm, uh, I have really uh, felt connected to your story about your father. Yeah, and, uh, and you shared so beautifully about him on Facebook. It's, uh, I'll break up here. It's very difficult for me to talk about still, but uh, it'll be raw uh, probably the rest of my life because we were just so close, so close. I'll tell you another story. My father never knew anything about my struggles. I didn't want to tell him. Uh, about a, when this all happened, my now wife moved out. She moved out. And uh, got her own place. I'd move out, and, and she did. And uh, I was alone, and I was so scared, and I felt so alone. And I, uh, I went over to my father's place, and I, he lived across the street from me. And I knocked on his door, and he let me in. What's up? Come sit down. And we sat on the couch, and I finally told him what was going on. And I just started crying, crying. Wow. And it was decades of crying. I was that for the first time, that bullied little boy who wanted to tell his father about his pain, but was afraid of being rejected. And he wouldn't have, he would have loved me. And uh, I was finally that boy telling my father my pain. And you know what my father said? He said, move in with me for as long as you need. We'll get through this together. Wow. Look at Come home. Come home, he said. Yeah. Had a dog. So I would go, my apartment was right there. So I'd go and feed my dog and, uh, and uh, you know, do and make sure my dog had company, and and then, but at night, I'd go and stay with my father, so I wouldn't be alone at night. You know, they, you know, they say so much, and it's so true, and and how important the family involvement and support is for our recovery. It is. And it's and 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 I, and I think in, we should be cognizant that it is a huge privilege because, as you know, right. you know, I mean, there are just so many broken families, estranged families, right. where that is part and parcel of the issue. Right. That's right. And uh, where somebody uh, they don't want anything to do with the person's recovery, and and you know, and families have families are families go through their own addiction process and healing process as well, and uh, it can be very difficult. And uh, so I feel very privileged to have a family who stood by me, and uh, and I wouldn't have blamed them, and it wouldn't have been their fault if they didn't, because family you have to do you have to take care of you as well. No, I, I love I, seeing I, Go ahead. No, go ahead, Carol. Go ahead. Well, just I love seeing you stand by you today, too, because I know what it feels like to not stand by myself 
and I do today. And it's such a new, beautiful feeling. And it's lovely to see in you. I'm always a work in progress, but uh, you try to you know do the next right thing and uh, be a little better version of you every day. But you know, it's uh, every day I get a little more comfortable with just being Brian. However, anyone else wants to define that, right? Because what people think of me is none of my business. Right. <laughs> uh, well, that, that's that's the part of the emotional sobriety, isn't it? That we don't, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about before, you, you live such a strong, I'm okay if life. And then in recovery, if, if we do the work, it turns into I'm okay even if. That's right. And I've had, to, I've had to be, mm-hmm. uh, I've had to work emotional sobriety with that on a number of different levels. Uh, for better or worse, I have a known last name and I get a lot of crap, right? Uh, I hear it all the time. You're only known because you're your brother. You're only this because you're your brother, right? right? So there was a long time when I was early in recovery when that would bother the hell out of me. Yeah. And it would make me angry and it would eat at me when people would say that to me. Now, okay. We get to differentiate or separate ourselves from, you know, what other people think about us, about talking about the dynamics that were going on in your family. And seeing that as a correlation, not as a causative factor. Yes. And that's so important is you can recognize these things without blaming them. Well, we all go through a process there too, right? I don't tell anyone, I don't tell anyone uh, what that process should mean to them because people have been through awful, horrible things. And that, you know, some people never get to that point. And it's not for me to tell them, you know, you need to get to that point, right? I mean, we have people have been sexually abused, sexually assaulted, and you know there are exactly just been horrible things in the family, beaten, and uh, everyone's journey belongs to them. That's why in recovery, right. I am just so huge and uh, on meeting people where they are in terms of uh, you know my path doesn't have to be your path. My path had to be abstinence, had to be. Uh, I wasn't going to rec- recreational use cocaine a line away, right? You, you weren't going to be California sober. No I, California I mean, sober. Now, if you. California sober works for somebody, that's great. But for me, for me, uh, if there's a baggie, it was gone. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, my my first sponsor used to say, "Blame's a good place to visit. You just don't want to live there." It's yeah. like it's like sometimes you have to pass through that, but it is about explanation. See, that's what the, the what we, what you're describing beautifully is 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 understanding yourself. We investigate, you know. That's and that's what therapy so often is. We we investigate. It's what the twelve steps take us through. We investigate how we came came to be who we are. We understand that, and understanding that is as Alan and I often say that of course mentality is is where self compassion begins where we say well of course i'm this way <laughs> how the hell else would i be you know having given my history it's like this well, is sure. what it is you have yeah. to learn to love yourself and shame is mm-hmm. uh you know shame is a linchpin to recovery right and how, how you mm-hmm. deal with shame and, uh, that's right shame is a normal body function it's a it's a mm-hmm. normal mm-hmm. bodily reaction to many different things and uh, uh so it's just how we deal with it that that causes things to leak out. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Right. It's how we respond, right? The responsibility. I mean, I feel, yeah. I, I still feel shame of things happen and you feel shame. Oh, yeah. it, it happens. Uh, we're human. We're human. Yes. We're, we're human. 
Well, yeah, I tell you what, you, your your book, I, I'm looking forward to getting it and reading it. And I the, the last two years, one of the things the pandemic has meant for me is I returned to reading fiction a lot more. And so I'm really enjoying reading novels and and uh, I look forward to that. But, but looking at the reviews I'm seeing about your book, it's like, I, I mean, even without reading it and with Carol's reading half of it, recommending it, I recommend anybody listening, go uh, get your book and read it. The I Ambulance so. Chaser. Yeah, right? here, here it is. It's called The Ambulance Chaser. But uh, yeah, but in, in any event, uh, I enjoyed being on and uh, I, it, this was wonderful. And it's always wonderful to talk about my journey and how I stay on the beam and uh, always happy to do it again. You all have a wonderful week and a wonderful holiday season. Thank you. Thank you. You too, Brian. Take care, everybody. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with. Then with glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else so here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children on one knee Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me